Nearly 10 years after a Fallbrook family of four went missing and their bodies were found in a shallow desert grave three years later, the killer has now been sentenced to death. Charles Chase Merritt was convicted in the bludgeoning deaths of the McStay family. Joseph, Summer, and their two preschool-aged sons, Johnny and Joey Jr. Merritt still maintains his innocence despite the sentencing, and because of a current stay on the death penalty, he may remain in prison until California Governor Gavin Newsom is termed out. For the San Diego Union-Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. Terry Figueroa, you're part of the public safety team at the Union-Tribune, and I'm calling you in the North County office in San Marcos. And it's been a decade almost, and the mixed day case has finally reached an end. What's the news? Well, thank you for having me. Um, after a 10-year um, tale, this case has finally come to an end. The man that was convicted of killing a Fallbrook family of four was sentenced this week to the death penalty. Mm-hmm. And this also comes at a time when there's a stay on the death penalty, right? There is, actually. Last March, um, Governor Newsom uh, issued a moratorium on the death penalty. Essentially, essentially, um, it will not be carried out mm-hmm. during his turn in office. And the execution chamber at San Quentin Prison has been closed for now. Mm-hmm. So, in a sense, it's a life in prison sentence unless things politically change for Chase Merritt, right? Well, you know, in California, condemned inmates stay on death row for decades, mm-hmm. decades. Um, so in a sense, and we haven't executed anyone in this state since 2006. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's been 14 years. So uh, it was already, it's already very mired in controversy. It's already an, an extremely slow moving process. Um, and in this case, the defendant happens to be um, 62 years old and has said that he has um, a heart condition. Mm-hmm. So, but every case that's a death penalty case is automatically appealed. So, you know, the future on this one remains to be seen. And he and he adamantly um, says that he is innocent. Mm-hmm. So, when you describe some of the some of the drama that you've experienced in the courtroom, because this has been a case that has really haunted the region for some time, what was it like to kind of experience that climax? Uh, it, it, it was heartbreaking. Um, the, these folks have lost, you know, uh, two people that they absolutely loved and, and four people that they loved, and, and two were just babies. Mm-hmm. They were three and four years old. The littlest one had turned three just five days before the family went missing. Um, when they found the family uh, in shallow desert graves back in 2013, um, there were diapers. I mean, these were babies. Mm-hmm. So in this case has been, oh, it's been around for, for 10 years. Back in February of 2010, this family went missing out of Fallbrook. Uh-huh. And investigators were completely stumped. I remember actually being out there when investigators were um, searching the home and bringing items out of the home back in February 2010. It, it, it was a head scratcher from the start. There was food left rotting out on the counter, um, bowls of popcorn on the couch. Mm-hmm. The their very beloved dogs were left outside in the cold, and this these were were folks who were very social and were very connected with folks. And 
all of a sudden, all communication just stopped. And nobody knew why. Mm-hmm. It was a huge mystery. And um, we would later find out that their um, abandoned uh, SUV was, or their RCV was found abandoned near the um, U.S.-Mexico border. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, it was almost like staged in a sense that these people are just disappeared in Mexico. There's, you know, they're not dead in the desert. Well, see, yeah, and, and that was the thing. Investigators, they simply didn't know. There was no clues. It was just poof. They were gone. And when their car was found, you know, very close to the international border, um, investigators eventually, three years later, concluded that, well, maybe they did go south and -hmm. something happened down there. Um, So they handed the case over to the FBI that year. But later that year came just this horrible, shocking news. Um, A dirt biker was out in the desert just right near Victorville. If you head up the 15, it's it's right in the high desert um, in San Bernardino County. And this dirt biker came across a child's skull and mm-hmm. called 911. And from there, investigators went out and they did find two shallow graves with the remains of, of the McStay family, the skeletal remains. And the other items that they found in, in the graves, most notably, was a three-pound sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. The victims had been beaten to death, presumably with the sledgehammer, although there is, you know, that is not 100% sure. Um, even, the, even the children, the, the four-year-old had suffered seven blows to his skull. Mm-hmm. So this was horrifying. Horrifying. Certainly. So after those bodies were found and the sledgehammer was found, how long did it take authorities to find Merritt? What was that connection? Well, he was, the families were found in November of 2013. And a year later, almost exactly to, to the day, it was within you know, a week of the discovery of the remains, um, there was an announcement that Merritt had been arrested. But, you know, authorities were mum as to what their, their evidence was. And they remained so for a long time. We didn't find out until... Um, a preliminary hearing in 2015 um, after his arrest, what their evidence was. And mm-hmm. among what they had um, that they said pointed towards his guilt was some evidence um, that prosecutors said that he had been uh, dipping into Joseph McStay's uh, bank funds. Now, Joseph McStay and Chase Merritt knew each other. Joseph sold, uh, or rather had a business that sold water features, mm-hmm. indoor water features. And um, Chase Merritt was a, a very talented welder who uh, Mr. McStay would hire to craft these custom pieces. And there was some evidence, according to the prosecution, the defense absolutely denied it, but there was some um, suggestion by the prosecution that the two men were having a falling out and that Joseph McStay was tiring of uh, Chase Merritt. And then um, the day of or... or it seems to be the day of um, the family's disappearance, may have uncovered that Chase had been dipping into his bank account. Mm-hmm. That was the prosecution's suggestion. Um, among the other evidence that came out at trial was that um, the abandoned 
SUV, the one found down by the U.S.-Mexico border, had a trace of Chase Merritt's DNA in it. Mm-hmm. The other um, piece of evidence that the prosecution said was among their strongest was cell phone um, data that put Merritt at the site of those graves, those shallow desert graves, within two days of the family's disappearance. Mm-hmm. And it was a lengthy trial. It, it ran from January, last January, 2019, through the end of May, and the jury deliberated for a while and came back with um, the guilty. They found him guilty of four counts of murder and special circumstances, and then went back and deliberate, deliberated um, what they felt his penalty should be, and they came back and deliberate, or, uh, recommended that he be given life in prison without the possibility of parole for the death of Joseph McStay. But they wanted to see the death penalty for the death of Joseph Sweat Summer and their two children, Gianni and Joey Jr., who the family called Chubba. Mm-hmm. On Tuesday, the judge, um, the judge sided with that recommendation, and that is, in fact, what he sentenced Mr. Merritt to. And it was... A very emotional hearing. It was the first time that the family members in 10 years had a chance to publicly confront the man that the prosecutors say killed their family. Mm-hmm. And it was heartbreaking. And, you know, the, the family spoke of just just being scarred. I think that was one of the, the terms that one of them used, just being scarred. Um, Joseph McStay's mom asked how, you know, he could kill or anyone could kill two precious little babies. And when it came time for Merritt to speak, he too cried. And he said, I am innocent. I, I understand um, that you guys think that I did this, but I didn't do this. Mm-hmm. And he said he will fight to prove his innocence. His family said they will fight to prove his innocence. His attorney said, I believe my client is innocent. Um, the McStay family and the prosecution said, no, we, the jury got it right. We have this right. He is absolutely the person. Mm-hmm. And when you listed all those pieces of evidence, admittedly, they are somewhat tenuous. Is that part of why this trial took so long, just because there wasn't an obvious smoking gun in this case? Um, the trial took uh, a lengthy amount of time for, for several dis- different reasons. Um, among those reasons is, yes, they dove into the weeds on this one. They got into some serious technical, um, what the cell phone tower data meant, and, and they had technical expertise in there on that. Um, there was discussion of DNA and what was and wasn't found in the, the graves, and there's also still a, a conflict over... Um, whether DNA or what DNA may have been found in the graves. That still seems to be unsolved. Mm-hmm. Um, so there there were a number of reasons that this trial dragged on. But, you know, this case has dragged on for years. It took um, – Chase Merritt was arrested in November 2014, and this trial didn't start until January of 2019. So that was more than four years just pre-trial, just waiting, waiting to even take this case to trial. So this case has been just years and years in, in the process. In fact, February 4th, which is what, 
less than two weeks away, mm-hmm. or about two weeks away, will mark 10 years since anyone last heard from the McStay family. Wow. So is it common that trials that are this complex take this long? Or is it just like the investigations that, you know, there was the he had multi-year gap in time? Like, what caused this to become a literally a decades-long story? Death penalty cases are obviously the most serious and, and um, the most extreme of punishment of sentence. So um, everything is is slow and scrutinized, uh, at least in my experience here in, in Southern California. Um, this case, there was added time in this case because the defendant uh, changed attorneys a couple of times. Um, and the judge was unavailable for a long stretch of time because he was, um, the, the judge assigned to this case, was assigned to another high-profile, um, very lengthy trial in San Bernardino um, before this trial could go forward. So there were just a number of factors, among them being this is a death penalty case. It is a very complex case. And, and yes, there was this was a case built on circumstantial evidence. So there was just a ton of investigation to do. There was a, a lot of work went into this case. Mm-hmm. And um, do you have a sense of what the next steps that uh, Chase Merritt will take after this? Um, so you mentioned that he's going to appeal, but what exactly is, is that path forward? Well, that, that's actually a great question. In California, a death penalty sentence is automatically appealed. So he will automatically be able to appeal. But it could take years just to have an appellate attorney appointed to him. And then that attorney needs to go through this case, go through all of the the trial documents, all of the evidence, and then file with the the state Supreme Court. So it is a multi-year process to appeal. It's an automatic appeal, but it is a multi-year process. Mm -hmm. And I imagine they haven't really explained at this point, but is there any like alibi or piece of evidence that um, Merritt's team has been pointing as to why they believe he's innocent. Do they have anything like that? Or is this all, you know, still under attorney-client privilege? No, there there were several pieces that, that, that came out in the trial. Um, absolutely, the woman that, that um, uh, his longtime girlfriend, who's the mother of, of his three children, um, said that he was with her the night that the family went missing. Um, his daughter, his adult daughter testified that, um, uh, she was aware that, that there had been a phone call to her father that night from Joseph McStay, um, further bolstering his alibi that he'd been there. Um, there was, they, the defense pushed back at every turn and they said, hold on prosecution, you have misconstrued and cherry-picked evidence and ignored evidence and you know there was some dispute over again what was found in the graves in terms of of dna um that still remains to be that's still something that they were fighting and nitpicking about at each other the prosecution and the defense um right up until the sentencing and even afterwards the defense said we still have problems with with the way that you treated DNA evidence. So those all could be issues that uh, could come up in the appeal. But again, it is a multi-year process, so we, we just don't know. It'll be a while until we see mm-hmm. 
but for now, we have at least this portion of the case has a resolution. It's not over, but this portion has a resolution. Mm-hmm. And uh, this one thing just kind of popped into my mind, but in this decade, technology has changed so much. Cell phones and tracking everything has become part of our lives. Do you think if this kind of murder were to happen today, there would just be so much more evidence that it would, you know, take less time to figure this kind of thing out? Because, you know, 2010 was eons ago when it comes to technology compared to now. You know, I don't know that I can answer that. Um, because if a cell phone is off, it's off. Yeah, it's true. So, uh, you know, and and if their cell phones were off, if his cell phone was off, if, if, if it's off, it's off. And there were no... I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe folks who have ring cameras on their door or, you know, something would cap, capture images of something happening in a home or, or on a street. Who, who knows? Mm-hmm. But, you know, this, this, one, this one was just such a heartbreaking mystery for so long. And at the end of the day, an entire family, a dad, a mom, two little boys, just gone. Mm-hmm. All right. Terry Figueroa, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. In other news, San Diego police announced Wednesday that they've arrested a driver in a deadly hit and run that occurred in Sherman Heights. 41-year-old Jason Randall Gordon was crossing Market Street between 17th and I-5 shortly before 2 a.m. Sunday when he was struck by an SUV. The vehicle dragged Gordon about 100 feet and continued heading east on Market. Less than a mile from a collision site, according to police, the driver stopped in to order food at Umberto's Taco Shop on Broadway and 25th. And when he left the restaurant, the driver backed his SUV into a sedan, police said. The man arrested is 28-year-old Christopher Nunez. Thanks for listening to the San Diego News Fix, which goes live weekdays at 5 p.m. On weekday mornings, you can also hear a quick rundown of local weather and headlines. Just tell your smart speaker to launch the San Diego Union-Tribune. You can also get the Flash Briefing as a podcast. For a full listing of our audio offerings, go to unionchip.com slash podcasts. Until next time.